Welcome everyone to another episode of the House of Wisdom podcast, where we interview academic influencers about their research and how it can shape the world. I am Deepak Mauer, an academic. I'm Anik Ahmed, a runner of distances of less than two kilometers. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, you've got you've got into running recently uh, because yeah, it's not something that you were really into. I mean, I've known you for like a while now, and you were the gym guy. You liked to taekwondo. It was taekwondo, wasn't it? That you used yeah. to do but you weren't someone that used to like running or even mention the word running so this is definitely a new feature to you i don't know what it is i think it's my it's my new year's resolution mm-hmm. that i wanted to exercise more and obviously without gyms or anything i was trying to think of something different to do mm-hmm. and running just fell on me you know literally just i was out like one day and someone bumped into me while they were running and <laughs> do it just, just run just, this made me realise I don't need to walk everywhere. I could run there. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a revelation. <laughs> you, can, you can run to places. Uh, do you like it though? You, are you enjoying it? I, I am loving it. It's quite fun. But it, it, it made me realise this, this is what it must have been like when they unveiled the bicycle. That's such what? a revolutionary step. <laughs> you don't have to run. You can cycle. And that's how it feels now. Like, why walk anywhere? It makes no anywhere? sense. Just, just run. Walking's less effort than running. Yeah. Uh, but is but, it as fun? Is it as fun, though? That's the question. I think we'll get too philosophical. So I'm going to leave it at that. Because it could be, right? I mean, say if you've got an amazing... Let's say we're back in Milan when we went to, to a, on a trip once. And we're amongst those uh, mountains walking around that. Is amazing right so it depends on the setting depends depends on your purpose we'll get that way too sounds, philosophical about this that sounds good yeah but life could be better <laughs> if you're running yeah um that's the that's the wonder woman meme you know with maxwell lord there's this thing of going on the internet he said okay. it in the says it in the film like because obviously he's all about granting wishes and yeah, yeah. like and that and he just goes like life is good <laughs> But it could be better. Oh man, I heard that feel. I didn't watch it. I actually really funny. So my brother, it was my brother's birthday a few weeks ago. And he said, Oh, I want to I want to watch a movie. I really want to watch a film. Uh gonna watch Wonder Woman. I said, Don't don't Why? do it. Don't Wonder Woman 1984. Don't yeah, I mean, do it. It wasn't great, but I loved bits of it. And he spent so he spent 16 quid on it and he watched it and he said, This was dreadful. He absolutely hated it. And I said, I told you. It was bad. Yeah, it was bad is quite strong. I feel like it was below its potential, but it was a fun film. I've been craving films for over a year now, so anything is good to me right now. I've heard some pretty scathing reviews, and I've just, even friends, my brother said it, they hated it. And from what I've heard, I've not seen the film, from what I've heard, it was pretty shocking. Uh, Yeah. Also, I'll like the, the CGI though. at the end, the cheetah CGI at the end is meant to be terrible. The fight scene. I don't think you can you can opine until you've seen it. Oh man, I'm not. I'm just things. I've I've always had an issue with that. Well, not an issue. I've always kind of been in a moment of confusion about. Look, I've heard because obviously I I listen to a lot of movie podcasts and things like okay. that. So I'm quite inundated on the reviews and everything. And it's a really tricky thing. It's like, should I watch a film that's bad just to have an opinion? Or have I heard enough opinions to know 
that's a bad film and I don't want to waste my time on it. It's, it's a really tricky thing. Like, it, yeah, but the thing is, it's where we get maybe a bit philosophical. Like, yeah. opinions are subjective and what they're saying is bad CGI to me may be acceptable and to us mm. may be acceptable. Mm. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of Marvel films out there that haven't received you know amazing uh, reviews or general films out there didn't receive amazing, but I love them. I really enjoy yeah. them. So that's why I, I do try to avoid the reviews until I watch it because I, I still want to have that excitement of watching something and then if it isn't great, then it isn't great. And then like you, I then read all the reviews afterwards to to validate my opinions. <laughs> but even on a plot, I heard on a plot level, it just sounded a bit mad. It just sounded a bit crazy. So I think what I, what I really liked about the film, what I really liked about the film was Max Wormald. Okay. He was a really awesome character, and I wish they actually just made more of the film about him. Okay. Um, Wonder Woman was awesome, but it just felt like uh, that story just wasn't very compelling versus the villain story, and it yeah. should put more of effort into fleshing out his story. Yeah. Um, but if we want to talk about good stuff, yes. Wonder Vision. Yes. But with a caveat, I'm going to say with a caveat. So I think what? because. No, 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 no. I, it's good. It is. I really enjoyed it. But one thing I'm annoyed at myself about and yeah. is about the whole fan theory thing. And that got too hyped. And when I watched the episode, I was a little bit disappointed because I started thinking some crazy things are going to happen and not watching what was in front of me. And it was only after having a chat with you, it was like, actually, that was a really interesting story about someone dealing with grief. And when you think of the show in that sense, it's awesome. It's a really interesting exploration in how to deal with sadness and how to deal with someone that you've lost. And on that kind of personal level, it's a great it's a great story that's been told. It was a great show and I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to watching it a second time round without those, without those kind of expectations of Magneto rocking in or some other crazy stuff happening. I think that was, that was a problem. So now looking at I really enjoyed the show. Yeah, and um, just to let you know, spoilers ahead. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I loved it. I was saying, saying to you earlier, right, that it's actually quite refreshing that they didn't release all the episodes at once. Yeah. In the first two weeks, we were both like, this is really annoying. Why can't yeah. they just release it? Well, I don't like this anymore. Just but give it to end, me. <laughs> it was like, by yeah. by yeah. the end, I was, uh, I've been persuaded. I, I actually like the fact that we were waiting each week and we were discussing about it, about the theories and everything. It reminded me actually of some of the best shows that I watched like in the past, like Lost, yeah. where every week and then during the summer when you're waiting for the next season, you were talking about yeah. it, you were reading that theory. And so I actually like that. I'm happy that they uh, they done it like that. Uh, so I enjoy talking about it with you, but I'm a bit annoyed with the whole fandom because yeah. there was one little story that I, I was made aware of so I think kind of running up to when the show was released, suppose Elizabeth Olsen had said that there was a Luke Skywalker-esque cameo. Yeah. But actually, when you read what she said, she said, I think she was asked, are you looking forward to a certain cameo or are you looking forward to certain things? And she said, yeah, there's a, there's a cameo that I'm really excited about. And then the headline for that interview was, should we expect a Luke Skywalker type cameo, which then spilled into there is a Luke Skywalker type cameo. And I think that got a lot of fans excited for something that wasn't even said. And I'm a bit annoyed with the media in terms of like how that was phrased and how that's framed. And that created a false narrative and a false 
sense of expectation about something that wasn't even um, hinted at. And it annoyed me about the fandom culture in that sense. And so I don't know. After this, I kind of might, might want to take a step back from watching a lot more of the kind of YouTube videos about these things because so, I just want to enjoy it for what it is. Because I feel like if I wasn't thinking about Magneto or Fantastic Four rocking in, I would have enjoyed the show for what it was a lot more uh, than I did initially. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there was so much, so much conversation online about WandaVision after every episode. Mm-hmm. And I pretty much, I think after episode three or four, I just did to stop going on social media for like the, 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 the two, three days before the episode. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy. It was nice talking with you about it. It was nice talking to other friends about it. Mm-hmm. And then after the episode, yeah, I watched some videos or I like, read some reviews. And even then I just kept it like shortlisted to a few that I trust and they're just like telling you about Easter eggs or things you've missed in the episode. They're not debating about oh, which characters are going to come next or, you know, Elizabeth Olsen said this in an interview. Mm-hmm. So we, we haven't even talked about the episode, but it was a <laughs> great episode. Yeah, it was a great show. Um, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to how it's going to play out in the rest mm-hmm. of the universe. And I forgot this is... Uh, it's not a Marvel podcast, but... <laughs> yeah, we probably should stop talking about that um, and move on to some of the uh, other things about the matters. But yeah, a little summarization. Really liked it. I liked how it was really creative. I think it was just a different show. I never experienced a show like that. And it was like Twilight Zone-esque and the whole sitcom commentary that it was having. was It was really interesting. But we should move on to some of the things that's going on in our podcast. Uh, I think we once hinted that we are planning a season finale, uh, something exciting, something that will be a bit bigger than the usual episode. And I think we're going to just let everyone know about it. Anik, what is it? What we what we are uh, going to have happen at the end of the season? We're calling it Academics Assemble. Mm-hmm. We're bringing together some of the leading minds in their fields to talk about some of the biggest issues. And it's going to be a special episode. We're doing it in King's College. Yeah, we're doing it at King's College London. So we are planning to be in collaboration with the law school for it. Absolutely. Yeah, I and mean, it's really awesome that they've uh, you know decided to, to work with us. And they've been really supportive, actually, since we yeah. started launching the podcast, right? Yeah. So that's going to be awesome. It's going to be live. Yeah, it's going to be our first live thing that we're going to do. So that's going to be interesting. I don't know how we're going to how we're going to be with that. I think we'll be fine. It'll be all right. I, I think we've got this. We're, we're okay. I hope. Uh, the listeners don't know how much we edit. <laughs> yeah, they don't know how much we edit. How much Sorry. nonsense goes on behind the curtain. Um, but, you know, it's worth just bearing in mind, we are bringing back some of our guests from this season uh, to talk about the topic that we will reveal pretty soon it's just an opportunity for academics from different fields to have a conversation with each other and to share and discuss their expertise to just you know bridge gaps and talk about topics in a way that is a bit more interdisciplinary so i think it's a really good opportunity we've had so many amazing guests so you know picking the the right characters was a little bit tricky but we're really excited about it i think it's going to be a great episode definitely check it out when it does come out promotion is going to start ramping up pretty soon but we can definitely confirm that we are having our very first academics assembled episode and um we are excited it's going to be good and we're going to reach out to you to to you for for questions and we're gonna we're gonna ask everyone to contribute and so hopefully it'll be quite an interactive session as well so um but you know yeah we can't wait and we've talked for a lot we've talked a lot 
on that note hold on hold on though we've got to say one thing though really important because we've noticed that reviews does really help up our game right um having the having the reviews on the apple podcast so a little call out to all you guys if you've got an ipad you've got an iphone just you know hit the, the five star um button on the roof on the i mean if you think we deserve five stars i feel like we deserve five stars but you know give us give us something positive leave leave a positive review it helps with the algorithm it helps just spread what we're doing a little bit further so please do that we've got some some uh really nice reviews already which has been great uh but if you can just post something to say i really enjoyed the, the podcast i enjoyed the topic um that would really help us a lot so please do that if you can um just help support the uh, the work that we're doing yeah we've got we've got seven ratings on this so far and i'm and i know it can't be me because i've only done one <laughs> can't do more on my device yeah yeah so. we, we we are encouraging as much as possible yeah okay. so so please do you know if you if you think we're doing something that is quite meaningful that you're really enjoying just kicking that five five star four star whatever positive review that would really help us so we are really grateful for that and uh Enough chitter chatter. We've done enough. We've talked enough. Let's get into the episode. So we are going back to climate change. We're discussing it from a new angle, from a different angle. This is one of your friends that we're talking to, right, Anik? This is an old friend of yours that we uh, brought onto yeah. the podcast. Yeah, I've known um, known him for over 10, 10 years now, I think. And yeah, he's one of the smartest guys I know. Very inspirational. We have the greatest conversations about all topics. And so I was just literally just waiting for the right time to bring him on and here we go let's do it welcome to this episode of the house of wisdom podcast in this episode we have dr robert charnock robert received his phd in carbon accounting from the london school of economics and political science while working with the united nations to develop a new carbon accounting standard for the financial sector His research focuses on how organizations can align their strategies with the transition to low carbon economies, which is linked to a broader interest in how we can coordinate the diverse array of action that is required to tackle global complex challenges. Robert is currently an associate of the Lloyds Banking Group Center for Responsible Business at the University of Birmingham, and in mid-2021 will join Shanghai Joy Tong University to establish China's first MSc in carbon finance. Welcome, Rob. It's great to finally have you on. Thank you for having me on, because I've been looking forward to this for a long time since we first discussed it. So we like to kick off each interview with a few light-hearted questions. And so the first one is, if you were stuck in the House of Wisdom, who would you like to share that time with? Then I, I, quick question. Is there a garden? At the, at the House of Wisdom, or am I literally locked inside for the whole time? You can imagine whatever place oh, you great. want. Great. Okay, well, I'm imagining. I'm going to say, I think we did have a guest who did add a garden to the House of Wisdom. So you got a garden there already. Excellent. Okay, fantastic. In which case, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll work with the garden from your other guests as well. I assume they have excellent taste as well. So in that, in that regard, I think for... I was thinking about this, and there are a few different options, but with a good garden involved, I think my choice, I would definitely want to spend a couple of months with Lalza, who is credited, it's disputed, but credited with being one of the founders of Taoism. And I think the the reason why I say, in my view, it's important to have a garden is because of Lalza's sort of insistence about the way we understand nature and our connection to it. Now, also two months because 
I'd love to learn so much more about what this is because it's a philosophy that seems quite um, fascinatingly different to a lot of the ways we would approach things in the UK, say, or in the West. So I think in that regard, two months to really immerse oneself in a different way of thinking about your relationship with the world and the different capabilities of language, for example, to express meaning would be absolutely, uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, so for me, it's quite an interesting guy because he seems to be the epitome of searching for wisdom, which I think works perfectly for a place called the House of Wisdom. And reading up on uh, Lao Tzu, it was interesting, so some of the, the mythologies behind him. So he spent 80 years in his mother's womb. So he came out nice and, uh, nice and wise, <laughs> uh, he was ready to get going, which I thought was quite an interesting story. But I've got a bit of a, a, a little bit of a problem with this, just a little okay. bit, because the whole idea of him is about, about being wise and wisdom. And I think, well, you get your wisdom from age, right? From, from growing and, and getting older, having experiences. So if he spent 80 years in his mother's womb, and then is meant to be the epitome of wisdom. Isn't that a bit problematic? <laughs> Hidden from the world for such a long time, and apparently he's born as the paragon <laughs> yeah. of virtue and wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 very, very, very fair point. I, I don't know. We, I, but you can tell, yeah. Take, might take a slight issue with the idea that wisdom necessarily comes with age. I think, yes, there's absolute truth within that. But at the same time, Wisdom is also about how you conduct yourself in life and so the pursuit of virtues. So I suppose it's where you're coming at it from the idea of what, what constitutes wisdom. And if, if what you mean by wisdom is this sort of pursuit of living life as a virtuous human in touch with the natural world, then that I don't know necessarily has to just be something that one can achieve and hold at, at some point in life but instead it's more of a process that one has to go through. So I don't know, can you, can you hold wisdom or can you just constantly try to be wise? Ooh, you've thrown that back at me pretty well. <laughs> um, Might but, be a theme. But, but generally, I think, uh, I mean, putting that kind of question to you, but I do like the idea of Lao Tzu, but just because he does encompass a lot of things that I admire about searching for wisdom, looking at you know, life and, and understanding yourself better. I think, I think there's some really intellectual principles there that can be pretty influential. And I think, you know, a few months with him, you're pretty sure to get wise, regardless of his uh, um, experience, eight years in his mother's womb, potentially. I was, I was slightly reluctant to suggest it though, because I, there's a, one of, the, one of the characteristics is that if, in order to try to understand one's place, it's, um, it's very difficult to express meaning directly through language but instead language is much more used as a way of framing a paradox or a tension. And that understanding the Tao, the, the way, this natural uh, flow, is meant to be done through sort of moments of realization. So it's quite an internal realization that's central to meaning. So it's very difficult to just explain through a text what this is. Mm -hmm. And that instead I was concerned that Lao Tzu might spend the whole time just putting paradoxes to me. And uh, it would be very difficult to have a flowing conversation and it was just paradox, go away and think about the paradox and come back and present me with another paradox to show me if you've <laughs> grappled what I was trying to get at. It's a uh, flowing conversation might not be a thing. So I don't know, two months together, we might actually be in isolation quite a lot. But. <laughs> Yeah, you might go crazy. It potentially might go crazy. You might drive you too intellectually far and you'll just uh, decide to just pack it up and leave pretty soon. 
<laughs> I think so. It's, it's a risk. Oh, the, the alternative was going to be Confucius, but from my understanding of the, the roots of Confucianism, it's much more about, uh, about sort of um, achieving harmony in society. And uh, some parts of that are sort of having a certain order of things, having a certain way of maybe a slight, ever so slightly more rules-based than Taoism. And I, I just felt if, if that is, if that's the correct reading of Confucius's work, that it could be quite a difficult housemate to live with if they're a bit of a stickler for the correct way of maintaining harmony in the house. But I don't know where the house of wisdom sits on house rules, so. I, th I think general rules are as long as you don't make a mess, we're fine with you. <laughs> wisdom is as much about reflection as it is experience. I think spending 80 years in his mother's womb reflecting on uh, on his conduct and his behaviours and so on, I think would make some quite wise when they come out. If you've got no experience to reflect on, then what have you got? He's thinking. He's thinking about everything. And he's, I bet he's leaving that situation with a very open mind. I think when he goes out into the world, he's just happy to accept and challenge and think and see everything without preconceptions, maybe. Mm -hmm. I think that would make someone quite wise, I think. I'd briefly add to this, just to come Go back ahead, to my yeah. initial point, is it sounds like you have a marvellous garden at the House of Wisdom, so you are <laughs> surrounded by the substance with which you're able to reflect. Who, who, who have we got so far in the house, Deepak? We've had Aristotle, Oscar Wilde, um, <laughs> Mandela. Do we have Picasso? I think we've had we've had quite a few uh, vibrant characters. Yeah, Jimmy Page was another one. That was quite yeah. that was quite interesting. One that's just a bit left field, but yeah. Um, all right, moving on to the second question. As we're talking about realizing visions, uh, we thought well. On that basis, what would be a gadget, some sort of technology you'd love to see re be realized in, let's say, 30 to 40 years? So it could be something pretty profound, could be something pretty uh, useful. Uh, up to you. What, what, have you got in your, what have you got in mind? Mm, well, OK, so I started thinking about this one in terms of, in terms of things to do with climate change. So whether it's to do with carbon capture sequestration, what flood barriers might start looking like in 50 years time. I think that's been really beautifully portrayed in a TV show, The Expanse. It's very subtly in the backdrop. But actually, I suppose what I got more interested in is whether augmented reality is going to just become such a key part of our day-to-day -day life. And in a way I was slightly slightly disappointed that the sort of the, the wearable tech for glasses didn't really catch on uh, in the early days because to me I just thought it was such a fascinating concept that everything we do around us while we're outdoors could be completely transformed um, you know I, I like being outdoors and I was thinking in 50 years time is it the case that I'd be explaining to a, a a grandkid or something, you know, oh, well, when, when I wanted to go out for a run, I just ran around the neighborhood or in a park. I wasn't able to, you know, and it, I don't know what it would look like, but this unbelievable different world that you could see everywhere you were. And then I was, I was watching another show the other day and I think it was a rather old show, but uh, you can, yeah, if you're sort of, if you have a sparring partner in the gym or I think you're into martial arts or anything like that, and thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if you had wearable tech that could basically turn that from just being sparring with a friend to almost being like in a scene in Batman with, <laughs> with the rhythm. You know, you know how, how they, all those cut scenes where they would have the kapow and the 
blam and all this. And just, I, it, I know it's ridiculous, but it's how, how this could completely change exercise and our experience of the outdoors and, you know, and just make what we're doing today, as enjoyable as it is, just seem totally archaic. You had me at Batman. <laughs> I've got a dark one and I've got a, a very light one as well. So my dark one probably looking at the trend today and how immersed people are in social media makes me think in 30, 40 years, what, what's the eventual path that that would take someone on? And I see us in a society where we're nearly like the Matrix or maybe Inception where we're literally at our homes or in some centers plugged into some machine. And we probably don't need any, we probably don't need real life sustenance except whatever the body needs to stay alive. And we're just living our whole life throughout augmented reality or in another virtual space. And I think that is very plausible. I, pr I probably watched mm. too much Black Mirror, uh, which certainly has influenced my, my thinking, but I can see that as a natural pathway given how people have reacted to social media and how immersed they are in creating let's say virtual lives which are very different to in some cases their actual lives realities my my light one is self-tying shoelaces so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Vel velcro so, is not good enough for and you that, and that's just not happened yet <laughs> oh brilliant you went from debbie downer to something really really useful <laughs> I've got nothing I, I don't think I can uh, contribute any better to that so I'm just gonna leave it at that really oh fantastic all right on to the topic at hand bringing together nearly 190 countries for the Paris agreement is an amazing achievement tackling a planetary challenge such as climate change is no easy feat and it requires coordinated solutions and innovations at every level but how do we translate a big goal like preventing a two degrees rise in warming into actions the state, the private sector, and us as individuals can understand and work towards, especially when there's no president for solving such a challenge? Rob, you've been doing a lot of work on how ambitious visions can be realized through a reciprocal relationship between the vision setter and its recipients. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on? Yes, I think this is a absolutely, it's, well, obviously I think it's a fascinating problem because it's what I've been looking at now for about 10 years. And this, I think what the focus of my work really is, is around how you can look at on a global scale, looking at complex problems and trying to understand how do you break them down into something that's manageable. Um, I think my concerns in this space came from so many different disciplines claiming to have so many different answers from sort of in climate change economists claiming that we just need to put a price on carbon and that'll fix it well that experiment's been going on for a very long time and the problem's still very much with us but to thinking that you're never going to find a silver bullet solution to any of these global and complex challenges so what is it that you do instead and if there's a lot of thinking about how you need to bring different groups together and bring different committees together to, to, to work on figuring out what those solutions would look like. But I think one thing that's been slightly underestimated is the power of a common goal and the influence of having a common target that's established. 
So, you know, we've arrived at this decision to, we've arrived at a target of limiting warming to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and pursuing efforts to limit that further to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, that target itself only emerged after about, what, how long is the history? 45, 40 years almost of, of to the two degrees target really buzzing around in policy circles. So I suppose one thing that I'm interested in my research is how do you, how do you end up at a point where you can have a common goal and a common target for a complex problem? Simply, how do you get there? Because it's easy to underestimate just how difficult and how important it is to get to that common target that everyone can agree on, that the whole world can at least agree is something we want to try to achieve. And then after that comes the, the work of saying, now that we've got that, the reason it's so influential, in my opinion, is that you can get different regions, different sectors, different companies, all applying their own expertise, their own specialisms, to try to figure out what does two degrees mean to me? And in that regard, if you require multiple solutions to tackle a problem, it's very difficult on a global scale like this to have one, over, one body that oversees the entire process. Instead, what you can do, what you can try to leverage is the ability of individual sectors, companies, even governments and individuals to figure out how they can do something now towards that global target. So if you like, it's almost like giving everybody a common research project to figure out in their local environment. You need to figure out what two degrees means to you. We're not, we can't tell you because we don't know, you know if, if there was some overarching body for the world. We don't know what that looks like. But what we are telling you is that's where we're going to get to. So the United Nations and all the countries can come together to say that's where we're going. And I think that's what I really particularly liked in terms of just focusing on specific sectors that are looking at trying to reach that goal and trying to hit that target. And I think for a lot of listeners, it would be quite interesting to hear um, if you're able to kind of answer this question, but what would the finance sector look like if, if it was impacted by climate change? You know, what kind of what kind of sector would it be? You know, how, because it is something obviously that the finance sector is taking seriously. They are trying to um, develop policies to ensure that they are able to deal with the climate change crisis um, and how it may affect them in, down the line. But, you know, it'd be great to hear you know, what would that kind of world look mm. like? You know, I think that's really mm. important for a lot of listeners to know about. Yeah, it, and it's, it's really interesting that you have from the early 2000s, you have people working on the idea of, of climate change posing risks to investors. And that, that was an incredibly important conversation, but it also changed quite substantially around 2010 when the two degrees target was emerging as a point of consensus. It wasn't yet formally agreed, but it was emerging as a point of consensus. And there was a really nice piece of analysis, con analysis conducted by the Carbon Tracker Initiative in London based on a, based on a paper uh, published in Nature and essentially said, what's going to happen to the financial markets if we are going to transition into a two degrees world? What does that mean for us? Well, one thing it means is that if we have, if we're valuing, say, fossil fuel companies based on the reserves that they hold, well, they're actually holding reserves that would put us well, well above the two degrees target. So we're valuing those assets that can potentially never be used. Are we overvaluing those companies? And what was beautiful in my opinion about the, about the uh, analysis is it used the whole language of the global financial crisis. It called it a carbon bubble. 
And so it's really leveraging that sort of conversation that's already taking place among regulators to say, well, how do we manage bubbles? So on the one hand, what climate change could mean for the financial sector is that they have an overvaluation of certain companies and assets that creates a bubble. And if they don't manage that bubble, it could burst and cause some form of crisis. But on the other hand, you've also got this question of, well, what would happen if we ignored the two degrees target? What, what, if, what if we just say nothing's going to happen at all? Not, not like no policymakers are going to do anything about this and we're just going to continue with more and more warming forever. Well, that then becomes an existential threat, not only to the societies that underpin capital markets, but also just one-off major weather events can be hugely detrimental. And when they become more and more frequent, that then undermines a lot of the risk assessment models that are, taking, that are conducted within capital markets too. So in a sense, you've got those two kinds of risks that are becoming major factors in the regulatory debates. The one side, which is the more familiar physical risks of climate change, what weather can do to capital markets by major events in a region of the world or across the world. And you've got this other side, which is much more about what happens as economies transition towards two degrees. And as they transition, how are markets going to change? How the industries need to change the way they invest? Are you going to get certain assets that have to be taken offline prematurely? Or are there certain companies you're overvaluing? And if that's the case, then the transition risks are potentially massive. So I think what you're seeing now is a lot more work being done to try to grapple with what are the transition risks of climate change and what are the physical risks of climate change as well. It's varying so much across counterparties that are operating in financial markets. So with funds that are backed by big pension funds or big insurance funds, there's emphasis for them to directly influence the funds that they're giving money to and in turn setting mandates for how they should be investing from the fund managers. Whereas in banks who don't necessarily have big investors that are providing them debt funding, but they do have major shareholders who are, again, these big funds. And so are you, are you from your experience, seeing a kind of different pace at which some counterparties are changing their tune towards um, climate change? And, and like you just mentioned, you know, some of them may be thinking, well, I don't need to change right now because I, there, there's no rule in place making me do that change. Yeah, I, I definitely think we've seen a very different, uh, very different groups becoming interested in this topic. Even you don't even need to look recently. You can even go back to the 1970s with the early green movement, seeing how what a big role the insurance industry uh, played, re insurance and reinsurance industries played from the very start of um, saying this. There's this long-term perspective that they inherently have to take because they're such big holders. Um, now. I think what you what what's changed more recently is yes you'll still get the arguments that if if these risks manifest we can we can divest incredibly quickly we can just get out of those markets and while that might be while that might be the case at the level of one individual organization I think the question is can that be the case for the whole system and I've had some really interesting conversations over the last. 10, well, yes, yeah, six years probably for this one, grappling with that question. And it's very difficult to, to convince people they can't just move their money out of something 
But what that does mean is this is a regulatory issue potentially, because it's about preventing the systemic shock. And I think that's really where, where as this debate evolved, you really saw regulators paying much more attention, realizing yes, no one is going to act. There, there's always going to be reasons for one organization to think they're safe. But when you amplify that to the level of a whole system, the system starts looking very fragile. And that is where the regulators come on board to say, no one is just going to do this by themselves, but this is a threat, this fundamental threat to the market. I think the Bank of England have, like you mentioned earlier, termed two concepts. One, thinking about the transition because of climate change and two, the physical risks from climate change, especially banks holding a lot of assets that may be exposed to some of those physical risks. And I was just curious to you know, get your view on whether, whether you think the financial system is fit for the transition aspect, you know, especially when you know, I'm just thinking with my banking hat on and banks who are quite short funded, they, the cost for them to lend long becomes higher and higher the longer the term goes, just by the way the, their funding structures are. And the transition to, 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 to a two degree you know, economy or two degree world means a lot of long-term investment. And uh, uh, what's your kind of view on whether the structures in place can evolve and adapt to deliver that goal? This is a, it's an excellent question, an incredibly difficult one to answer. I think where I would probably start thinking about that is, um, is partly in terms of what, how we understand the remits of the regulators as well, say the remits of the central banks. So you've got all of these, we've, we've, we've created a system that does privilege the, the, the short term view. And, you know, this is identified very early on, even in 2015, by Mark Carney's speech on the tragedy of the horizon. You know, this is we've fundamentally built in short term views and short term decisions to the system. So I think what regulators are grappling with, some more quietly than others, um, is kind of the question of well, what is their role? If their role is to promote price stability in, in markets, well, does that mean that they have to remain sort of neutral to what the market is? Or are they able to start trying to channel some of their, whether it's finances or whether it's policies, to promote certain industries in the interests of stability? Now, typically, one of the core principles within, the, within say, central banking is market neutrality. But if you remain market neutral in a market that's very much geared to the short term, very much based on carbon intensity as sort of one of the, like the core of the economies, if you like, well, how can you square that with maintaining long term financial stability when you have an issue like climate change? So I think to me, I would perhaps look at that from the point of view of these remits of, of central banks do change over time you know, or the interpretation of those remits do change over time. And that's what I'm quite interested in right now. Are, in the next 10 years, are we going to start seeing some reinterpretation of the role of regulators that could fix some of the problems that you're absolutely correct in identifying? And I think you are right that there will be more collaboration as, you know, looking back at the regulation that came out after the recession, and when I look at how they were setting kind of capital requirements for the different assets that banks were lending mm. against, in the EU in particular, there was a bias towards increasing SME lending because at that time it was all about getting money back into the corporates, which are the backbone of these economies. 
And I can certainly see uh, a collaboration of some sort with you know, political pressure, which then in turn influences the regulation to encourage more lending to climate type um, assets or which is whether it's you know greener homes or whether it's you know technologies that hopefully will create a more renewable energy um, infrastructure and I think the government in those cases would have to somehow issue types or guarantees to encourage these banks to lend to these kind of type of assets which are inherently more risky because there is risk in in delivering long-term change. I think there's a there's a real issue with um, the risk profile of a lot of climate related projects um, for mitigating greenhouse gas emissions or even adaptation to the physical impacts of climate change, because these are inherently new. They've not necessarily been you know tested to the same way of a lot of the conventional investments would have been. So how can you how can you package that much riskier, potentially much smaller scale projects into something that's palatable for leveraging mainstream finance and I know that's an issue that I think it was um, something that the Green Investment Bank tried to work around tried to work with um, one of the ideas behind the use of public finances was less about simply trying to finance as many of these projects as possible but about financing projects in a way that could almost prove the case and could try to package up these projects into a form that would be more palatable for mainstream investors now as an academic, you can point to various problematic uh, versions of trying to financialize the solution to climate change, okay? But look at, from what I've seen, um, I think that's one of the areas where they're trying to say there's potentially a way of converting these unfamiliar and risky investments where the due diligence costs would be so high that it's not a commercially viable investment and turning those into something that looks a little bit more familiar. Moving back to, I suppose, the idea of the, the two degrees uh, target and why that's a game. I think it's kind of, especially what you've written in your articles, this is a bit of a game changer, um, especially for me when looking at it from an international law perspective, we look at the Paris Agreement as something that's a little bit of a failure because we focus upon it. Well, I will say that maybe other international lawyers might not agree with that, but I'll certainly say because we're, we're quite, quite, quite focused on the state, right? We're quite focused on what is what our country's going to do, what are the state's going to do to, to actually deal with um, the climate crisis. What's interesting and it was really refreshing and actually to look at it from a non-state perspective and as you kind of talked about from a bottom-up perspective, so looking at it from what the private sector is doing, what are think tanks, companies, regulators doing in terms of actually trying to achieve the two degrees uh, target and I think that is particularly interesting and links up and I think we'll go into a little bit more about Foucault but I want to just go into that a little bit in terms of why this is such a positive step for those that are maybe focusing less so on what the state can do, what governments can do. And for the private sector, for example, this is actually quite a positive goal to try to mm. achieve. So I think what's incredibly important about looking at this from the sort of what, what, you're, what you'd call a bottom up version of kind of regulation, perhaps, is, is again, it's about not privileging the state, not putting the state as the focus of all of our efforts. I mean, 
my supervisor during my PhD went as far to ask me whether I thought the state still existed, but I don't, I, that's, I can't, that's a question I still can't answer today, I'm afraid. Um, but, but it really gets to the point of what, what is regulation? We, we tend to conflate the terms regulation and law in day-to-day -day language, but they're completely different things. And, and regulation comes from so many different sites. And I think to me, that's what's incredibly important is saying that you know, we almost privilege this hierarchical view of control in societies. Whereas really we, societies are a little bit more flat in the sense of there's many different groups that have influence over what we see as problems and what we understand as the solutions. And it's, it's surprisingly rare to find a government coming up with a version of the problem or a version of the solution that is not already widely established as the consensus view. Now that could be the consensus view within a small group of sort of experts in the field, but if you like, I think it's really important that we start understanding regulation in a much more decentered way. That there are many different groups who regulate, and that any group who regulates is also regulated themselves by those they interact with. So in that regard, I think what's the, the real game-changing version of why it's important to have, say, a two degrees target is because it means we're no longer looking at a hierarchy and saying the people at the top need to tell us what to do and what our roles and responsibilities are in tackling the problem. And instead, it's saying, you know, if you want to think of a hierarchy, maybe you think of the United Nations as a central body there, and they can establish, well, this is what we think is our vision of the future. This is the target we're trying to achieve. And saying to the world, quite honestly, we don't actually know every step we need to take to get there. But what we're all going to do is we're all going to work to get there. And that's what's really important, because that's what allows all of these different groups to start working in a common direction. And I think it's the common direction of all of these different efforts, whether it's the NGOs and think tanks, whether it's to private sector and industry associations, or simply across government agencies and regulators, that they all have a shared vision of what we're trying to accomplish, and they can apply their own expertise to getting there. Am I too strong in saying this is a great example of the free market self-regulating itself to come to an efficient outcome? Especially with something like climate change, where the people at the top who are trying to set these ambitious goals do not necessarily know how we're going to deliver that. And so they actually need people to figure it out and come back to them. And, and like your paper talks about, that kind of that circle of information flowing from the vision setter to the recipients and back to the vision setter to refine and make the vision even clearer to its recipients. I don't, I don't think you're going to get me, hey, um, sorry, let me start again. <laughs> you're clearly too wound up. <laughs> was it the free market point or was it the <laughs> self-regulating point? <laughs> I, I did preface by saying, is it too, is it too strong of a statement? <laughs> I think my feeling is that it would definitely be too strong of a statement and you'd be, uh, you'd be hard pushed to get me to uh, claim that free market has the answer to anything here. I, I think what you might get me to say something much closer in, in spirit maybe to what you're saying is that I think what we're seeing is a version of climate action that emphasizes pragmatism. And in doing so, it recognizes that 
at any one moment in time, there's only certain politically feasible options on the table. And there's only certain technological solutions and, and public sentiments that are available. And that is the conditions that we operate in. So what we can promise that we're going to do today is so heavily constrained by the conditions of today. So it's really hard for us to promise that we're going to achieve something in 50 years time to, well, to tell people that we can definitely commit to really severe targets almost immediately when the options aren't on the table. So what's really clever about the Paris Agreement is that it's based on a ratchet mechanism that people will pledge what they're able to do today based on the conditions we operate in, knowing that as we start working towards that vision of limiting warming to two degrees Celsius, there will be new policy options, there might be new technological solutions, there will most certainly be different public sentiments to work with. And so in four or five years time, those commitments that were made can be made stronger. And it's built into the Paris Agreement that they have to be stronger when they're communicated. It's very difficult to enforce that. But even so, it's about saying, do what you do as much as you can today. Be as ambitious as you can today. Because we know in five years time, you can be more ambitious. And we're having to pin our hopes that this series of five-year stock takes of ambition will get us below two degrees and will get us towards 1.5 degrees. And some people don't like that because people want it to sound much firmer, like there's legally binding targets that are enforceable through international law. But I think the Paris Agreement is far more aware of what is practical at any one moment in time and focuses on working with what people can do now. I, I think that's some of the positives out of the Paris Agreement, especially for a lot of international lawyers. They look at the Paris Agreement. It doesn't for states to act it's giving them a room to maybe set their own targets and i think that freedom is actually quite a good thing in terms of maybe trying to achieve those things um i want to kind of go back to anique though a little bit and ask anique a question uh because you talk about how um how these how the private industry how the finance sector is going to be making decisions how they're going to be taking these measures i assume you know, think tanks will probably play a role um you know, research would obviously play a role in that in terms of you know acquiring the data to kind of maybe make those decisions on what the best measures would be. Probably me and Rob are not the, the perfect people to answer that question. You're probably the perfect person to answer that question in terms of what is the private sector, what is the banking sector doing um, to actually deal with these and you know, get the right measures in to think about how to incorporate the climate crisis within the decisions that they make. Mm. That's, a, that's a good question, Deepak. Um, I think the first phase of acknowledging the, the impact of climate change for most banks and financial companies has been monitoring. It's trying to understand what impact their companies or their firms have in respect of climate change. And so there's been a big kind of exercise of assessing what activities these banks and finance companies do and how much impact that has on, on kind of the targets that, that Rob's been talking about. I would say the second phase now, which is being more influenced by market forces. Um, I would say the Bank of England and the government have been applying, let's say, visions, which have not translated in hard rules, but they have set the direction of thinking. But the main thing that's been impacting, I would say, financial services is market forces in, in the terms of investors. And those investors who gather money from literally people like you and I in our pensions 
are now saying, well, I'm not going to invest in that pension fund because you don't align with my ethical or climate or environmental um, goals. And so I'm going to give you less money. And so those pension funds in turn are deciding, actually, for me to you know, get this money from these individuals, I need to now start thinking about how we should invest in a more ESG type way, they call it. And that's having an impact certainly on the kind of end investments that these funds or banks are making. So, I mean, I make the free market point. Um, I, I'm certainly it's a very strong statement, but it's had a a quicker turnaround in impacting end assets than the government or regulators have, in my opinion. Um, and I think what Rob, you know, was clarifying earlier, which is important, it's not the regulator's goal to influence lending strategies of these finance companies. It's to create a stable financial system and enhance its resilience. And it's identified climate change as a big risk to that resilience. And so it's advising banks to assess that risk and make sure you hold the appropriate capital if those risks materialize. But it's not influencing lending strategies. So certainly in the short term, big banks like JP Morgan are still working with big fossil fuel companies. And maybe in the medium to long term, those companies will eventually transition to um, kind of more renewable type activities. But in the short term, the big bank can't just cut off those clients and, and companies that it serves. So I think there's a lot of work going on I don't think it's enough and fast enough, but I think with market forces and the way people are continuing to put pressure on any company, not just the financial system, to, to consider the climate change, I think we'll get there. And then on top of that, if the government via, let's say financial regulation, can implement rules that favor or bias more lending towards climate enhancing activities, then I think we could also get there in a faster way. So, so the EU in um, the financial regulation that it issued after the recession in 2014 kind of coined Basel, Basel III and they introduced it via a directive and a regulation called CRD4 in that it set out biases towards certain assets because they wanted to encourage lending. And so if, if everyone, the governments of, of the world, you know, want to use finance as a, as a role to enhance resilience to climate change and, and kind of invest in technologies to help us, then that could be one mechanism that would, uh, you could see a direct link to. But, but today I would say it's more market forces um, in that kind of loose sense that the way I described. Just to, just to um, emphasize something, I think Anik's absolutely, uh, absolutely right in sort of what you're talking about as almost the recognizing the influence that finance has over the over all industries and sectors around the world um in fact one of the i remember one conversation where somebody has kind of dawned on somebody within finance hang on you're putting so much pressure on finance because you want to turn us into a quasi-regulator you want to leverage our influence over all these sectors and industries by trying to change the conditions that we put on our lending and sure enough, I've spoken to consultancies and companies more recently who've said our investors have just come to us to say if we don't set science-based targets or if we don't explain how we're going to reach net zero, that potentially they're either going to give less favorable rates or not be able to invest in us in the future. 
or, or lend money to us in the future. And I think that is an incredible thing to see so quickly after, you know, after, you know, 2015 is when a lot of this regulatory debate really took off. And just this year, we're already seeing uh, this having a real impact on how companies across industries have to think about what they're doing on climate change. I've kind of lost track of who the guest is and who's 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 meant to be uh, interviewing who now. Um, but regardless, I think this one is for Rob. The question, next question. Um, I particularly enjoyed how you used obviously someone that does a lot of research in in legal theory and political theory. I particularly enjoyed how you used Foucault uh, to argue for that that bottom down bottom up approach um, and how we don't have to wait around for the states to make the decisions. Um, the bottom-up approach is, is perfect because we're actually setting the standard that we want to achieve and that we want to go for. Um, just want to ask you, how can we decide to use Foucault? I mean, why was it kind of the civil society concept, such a such such a interesting idea that has so much resonance in what's going on with achieving that target, that two degrees target? Yeah, one, one thing I'd like to start with explaining is that my, as much as I can spend weeks on end, uh, immersed in different theory and find it absolutely fascinating. With my research, I'm always trying to find the relevant application of theory to the problem at hand. So I think for me, what, what I found in Foucault, particularly you know, with, uh, with biopolitics and his comments on civil society, relates to how we as a society are going to come up with solutions to climate change. Not one big grand solution, but the thousands upon thousands of solutions that are required in order to make progress. And I think to me, that's really where Foucault comes in. And if we think about what we've talked about already with the financial sector, you know, you can ask questions around how does an industry start recognizing the systemic threat that climate change poses? And on top of that, how do they then start developing sector specific solutions? And I think this to me is is kind of where I found it most useful, Foucault's work most useful, because one thing the civil society view from his work uh, focuses on is how different knowledge bases come together. So whether you're talking about climate science, economics, law, the, the sector specific knowledges that are crucial, how are they brought together into a common space? And how do we create some kind of hybrid knowledge out of all of those things. How do we bring those knowledges together so that they can find a mutual understanding of the problem for that sector and what the solutions might start looking like? And again, it's, it's kind of dispelling, it's kind of throwing away this idea that any one way of thinking can have a solution, but instead it's about how do you bring together multiple ways of thinking on a problem to create a relatively practical solution from that? So in that regard, I think what I found incredibly helpful to think about with the financial sector is simply that over the last 10 years, we've seen a conversation unfold that began coming out of the, the direct campaigns from NGOs like Rainforest Action Network and the, and the group called BankTrack as well, really putting a lot of direct pressure on banks to get them into a room in the first place to start talking about these problems. But then once you get people into a room together, that's where you start figuring out, so what is the problem? And based on that common understanding of what the problem is that we need to address, what do the solutions then start to look like? 
So I think really for me, what Foucault helps us to look at is how you can bring different knowledges together, different ways of understanding the world together. And after a lot of, I'd like to say discussion, but frankly, it's heated debate and argument and contestation through which you can finally end up with a relatively, of something of a consensus view on what the problem is and what solutions are likely to look like. And I think for me, it's the ability to use his work to map the different, the different arguments, the different truths, if you want, the different truth claims that are being espoused in any one space to come together to find some degree of consensus about a practical and politically palatable and feasible solution to a common understanding of what the problem is. And perhaps that's where I th it's really interesting because one particular point I really enjoyed was this idea of multiple interventions are needed. And I think you've alluded to it already in terms of you can't have just one big uh, movement happen. You need to have actually multiple interventions, multiple contributions on, on various different levels. And I think, and that's hence why you know, Foucault works perfectly well, but that's why it's kind of that bottoms up approach is perfect with climate change. We're not having to wait around the state or the, the government to kind of slowly get through the things. It's, you know, it's, it's a more fast and effective way of doing things. Absolutely right. Absolutely. And, and in addition to that, when you have, when you catalyze all of this effort and you can try to channel it more or less in a similar direction, you end up with this fantastic amount of energy, but also a critical mass of groups working in the same direction. So you end up with tremendous momentum on the problem. And I think it's easy to underestimate just how important critical mass and momentum behind a problem is in terms of just making gradual but sustained progress over decades and decades. I, I was going to cheekily say that it's, the more you guys talk, the more it seems to prove if you let the market figure these things out they can push some of this forward <laughs> that's what i keep hearing <laughs> i mean if you allow groups to think about the problem kind of so let, let me ask you anique what, what would happen if there were no if there were no think tanks no no ngos mm. no public sentiment no media and there was no government issuing compliance directives because a lot of what you've described as free market economics seems to actually be heavily compliance based um what would happen in a free market if you didn't have those inputs from the outside that effectively established the laws of the markets the constraints on the markets yeah no that, that's a good point you make about i mean are you framing the media our thinking as part of regulation and control let's say rather than free thinking and free because i would take the example of elon musk or tesla and spacex which is probably um a, an exception to the rule um but he's very forward thinking and he's and he's been thinking about this problem for a long time in probably abstract versus what the rest of the world is doing and he's decided upon himself he needs to create companies that are renewable or have the intention of being you know saving the planet and saving humanity. Um, I think the rest of the world, especially in the private sector, is determined still by profits and shareholder interests. And the media and all the influence, let's say, of governments and regulation has trickled down to people like me, where we go, oh, actually, I, I want to work with a company or oh, I want to invest in a company that 
seem to have some level of climate standards or ethics. And is that me waking up to that thinking or is it me being influenced over years now of watching the news and so on? It's hard, hard to tell, but um, to answer your, your original question, um, free market without all of that probably would, it probably wouldn't have happened. But I, I think the point that I suppose I'm trying to convey is that the execution of delivering that vision probably could only happen naturally through this kind of free market process. I don't think the governments, or they haven't, they haven't set anything. They've, they've set a vision which hasn't been enforceable and therefore banks like US banks in particular continue to be the largest contributors to fossil fuel companies. And that's also an example of regulation not really influencing and again, free markets reacting because shareholder profits in corporations are what make a corporation. You know, you set up a private entity to make profits for the shareholder, not to deliver social goods to the economy. There's an argument that it should, but that's not what the basis for a corporation is. And so unless you know, that it links towards profits, which is it is now because people are now in, only investing in funds or banks that have this agenda, then you wouldn't see any change. So probably a balance is there. Obviously, I'm, 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 I'm kind of uh, poking the bear with my, <laughs> with my comments, but no, it's certainly a balance. Hey. I, I don't mind being provoked, you know that. I'm always, always find on those fascinating conversations. I yes, uh, and I, I would say as well, I'm not. I'm. I, I think my view is we've got, we've got, a, we've got a problem to solve that requires a relatively rapid response uh, to things, and that if there is a role for the markets to play in helping nudge that along, fine. But more importantly, it's become so fundamental to what our governments and societies are about, that we manage our economies, even that as a core concept, that it's almost impossible to ignore the notion of what the economy is, how the economy functions, and what economic progress looks like if we're going to tackle climate change within the time we have. Now, I know there are others who will say if we had an entirely different system in place, then a lot of these issues might not arise or it might be much more controllable. And that's absolutely fine. I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that. But I look at the time frame involved and just don't know that we have the time to completely reinvent the way we run societies in order to tackle before we tackle this problem. I think we need to get on with it a lot quicker. And I think what potentially some people underestimate is how much the different philosophy underpinning what the economy is can manifest over time. So we may be at the sort of, you know, we may have had decades of neoliberalism that's changed the way we think about this. And I would take issue with the fact of what you're saying about why a corporation exists, because you can go further back in history and find very different reasons for why corporations exist, or at least what their role is in society and what their duty is to people. And I think where we're at now is almost rediscovering some of those older ideas about the, the responsibility of the corporation. And we see that now manifesting in new laws being introduced, essentially. And I would still see, you know, coming back to what Deepak's saying about, you know, from coming as a, as a lawyer, I still see the law having an incredibly important role in tackling these issues. I just don't know that it's where we start. I think it could be much more what 
formalizes what has become the norm and the consensus view. And when it's formalized into law, that's incredibly powerful. But the law doesn't do it first. I kind of just want to add in with that in terms of, I think I don't want to frame the argument as if the state doesn't matter or the public sector doesn't matter. I think it's more, it's got a role to play. Again, the whole idea going back to multiple interventions, so multiple levels actually playing that role. So it's just making sure, well, we've talked about kind of a market-driven idea. Well, that's going to be profit-driven, right? And that's definitely going to be the case. So you need an authority, you need some sort of entity that's going to just rein that in to make sure if the, if the target is climate change, that's the main focus, not you know profit, for example. So that's perhaps where the public sector will come into play, where the state comes into play, where they draft legislation that'll be effective and ensure that you know the, the drive within the finance sector, within these corporations, isn't just profit. It is actually having that maybe ethical standpoint on what we're doing and how we should do it. So I think that's maybe where the role of the um, of the public sector comes into play. I hope that I hope that calms some of Anik's tensions. <laughs> uh, I, I think Rob's point is really valid. It is a balance. I'm uh, I'm always going to poke a little bit and, and see what where the conversation goes like I did on the last episode where I, I, I questioned the, the, the strength of the international law framework for dealing with something like climate change mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the previous guest gave gave a very robust response um, I think what I, I did find really interesting in your in your piece Rob was you know you, you've identified a mechanism which is showing us how you could address a big issue like climate change and I was wondering in your view now that you've kind of identified how these disparate groups can work together and come up you know, with a mechanism to deliver something like that. Is there any way we could accelerate that? Because I would find that very interesting. Obviously, for something like we've been talking about, this is a, a big issue that needs immediate action. Knowing how you've seen how all these parties can come together and, and somehow regulate each other or self-regulate to deliver such a thing. You know, do you have any ideas of how do we, how do, we do more of this? It's an interesting question because on the one hand there's how do we accelerate from where we already are with climate change and I think for, for, from my point of view what we need is some degree of monitor. we need a more advanced monitoring and enforcement system surrounding the ratchet mechanism of the Paris Agreement and I don't when I say enforcement mechanism I don't mean what you'd normally think of under say the Kyoto Protocol on climate change which is sort of about the operation of law and sanctions that were never used in practice, although were designed, um, versus a version of enforcement that's much more about scrutiny from many places and about there's naming and shaming from many places as well. And I know that sounds a little bit uh, weak as a suggestion that shame could play a key role in this, but I think it's crucial that a lot of scrutiny is now put on the new pledges that governments are making. Because if you like, we have established a mechanism through which we have, yes, a long-term vision, but we're also now going to establish these series of short-term plans. And that itself can then continue on a say four or five year basis, catalyzing this new dynamic of, well, we have this long-term vision, but this is now what the five-year vision looks like. And so that's where I would say to, to really accelerate action is about finding very sophisticated ways of scrutinizing and putting pressure on these four or five year stock takes under the Paris Agreement, where we look at how much countries are increasing their ambition. But I'd also just add one other thing on this, which is 
there's a parallel, not a parallel framework exactly, but we have the sustainable development goals as well. And yes, if you look, I could talk extensively about the 13th one because that relates to climate change. But if you look more broadly, it still is a form of goals-based governance. It's trying to establish some goal of what we're trying to achieve associated with some more specific targets and indicators so we can measure progress. And I think that each issue you look at is going to be incredibly different in how it manifests and which groups are involved and the degree of complexity and geographical difference. But even so, if, if goals-based governance seems so deeply embedded now in how the world is looking at sustainable development, then I think there's something where you can look from climate change and say, what did two degrees do to conversations on the climate? And how is that going to differ if we start trying to establish some global goal on biodiversity loss, for example? And what does that look like? Is it number of species? Is it the diversity of the gene pool? Or the, you know? And there's so many different ways you can establish these things. And a, a further question in my mind is, actually, we did have a goal on climate change. It was to, for a, for a very long time, since 1992, to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate system. One of the key differences with the Paris Agreement is we quantified that into a target and we said two degrees is the threshold. So there's also something fascinating there about how you go from goals that no one can disagree with. No one can disagree with the idea that, yes, that is the goal we're aiming for. But then something weird seems to happen when you quantify that, because it gives a different basis for analysing the problem. Now, I'm not, you know... I'm I'm a sociologist and I got it. I became fascinated by research because I was interested in how numbers influence societies and influence people, influence in the workplace in particular. So I'm not, I'm also a skeptic of quantification. I have to be, it's an inherent part of my job. But even so, it does do these amazing things when you suddenly quantify a goal that we've known about for what, 23 years at that point when we reached the Paris Agreement, we put a number on it. I, I, I think what happens when you quantify something is it makes people accountable. And when you give people non-smart objectives, which just goes back to smart objectives, if it's something is qualitative, it's open to interpretation and it's always achievable. Mm. And so I think once you put a number to something, everyone's behavior changes very rapidly. Um, and yes, like you, I'm, I'm no sociologist, but I'm, I, from experience, when you put a smart objective of a, on the, on a person, it their tune does change very quickly. I'd, I'd agree, and, and if I if I may just talk briefly about a different climate target that we did have um, it, under the Kyoto Protocol and in the lead up to the Copenhagen talks in two thousand and nine, the type of target that was being used was the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Now. In 2009, there was a backlash against this approach because the argument was from developing nations that it limited their future emissions space and therefore limited their prospects for development. So how did we end up with a different quantification on top of that? We ended up with the two degrees target instead. Well, in order to convert a warming target into a concentration target, there's just ever such a slight degree of variability that that introduces into the system. So we've got a quantified target. It looks firm, it looks simple, it looks like we can manage this thing and grapple with it. But there's just that little bit of flexibility built into the way it gets translated that made it much more palatable to say, we're not defining your emission space. 
we're just saying as a world, we have to achieve this. And I think there's a crucial distinction between do you set quantified targets that are highly constraining or that are sufficiently firm to give direction and create consensus while sufficiently malleable to allow a degree of flexibility? Because I do think that flexibility is crucial to coming up with solutions in different regions and different governance structures and different sectors and industries as well. I feel like it's, um, it's like walking on eggshells, trying to just maneuver your way through how best to kind of set a target. But I, th- I think one of the benefits of it is it, it makes it tangible. You've got just a, an easy to understand target. I mean, you know, obviously we can look deeper into it and actually reaching that target can be more complex. But I think in terms of like campaigning it and promoting it to a wider audience, I think that just seems a bit more digestible for for the everyday person to be like okay that's the target we need to hit that two degree target and i think that's perhaps where the success of of framing in this way is probably um is where it is that really um so kind of coming towards the end of this interview and this is a bit of a tricky question so i can understand if um you you, you might not have the answer for this um and it's a lot i think it's a lot of theorizing about what's going to happen but i think it's worth bearing in mind we live in a pandemic world and COVID-19, and how is that going to change things? How is that going to alter the approach? I mean, obviously, this this could be, you know, this could go any direction, really, but what's your feeling? Because the way I see it is companies have obviously, well, economically, we've been hit so badly. Um, is this going to intensify the interest in actually dealing with the climate change, or is it actually going to put it in the black burner? Um, you know, those are two potentialities I kind of see. What do you think is going to happen? You're right that this is a remarkably difficult question, um, but let's have a think. So I would I would say that there's a few different ways, a few different impacts that we've seen already. I think one crucial element is that we are going through a major global crisis at a time where people are really paying attention to fixing the issue of climate change. And I think that's really important because a response to a crisis has the potential to bring new ways of thinking, new remits for regulators, uh, new applications of public funding, and in that regard can open up this door to addressing the issues that people care about. And right now there is momentum behind tackling climate change. So so the crisis creates a space for bringing some of those things in. Whether it will or not is a totally different question. I'd also suggest that with COVID-19, we've had a fantastic example of whether what happens if governments do or don't listen to the advice of scientists, of medical experts in, in, with COVID-19. And what, I've, you know, what, what I think is so uh, t- almost tangible, well, yeah, I, I suppose tangible is the right word, because if a government isn't paying attention or doesn't heed medical advice, well, the results of that decision, the consequences of that decision become clear two weeks later or a month later not decades later. So you get this feedback mechanism of what happens when we as a society ignore the scientists and we see the impacts it can have very quickly. Now, we're gonna see a very similar feedback when it comes to climate change, but it's going to take decades to see that. And so I, one of, you know, if I'm being optimistic about this, I hope what this clarifies is that, you know, 
the advice from the scientists is well worth heeding because it does have consequences and those consequences can become very real very quickly. Equally, even when they don't become real quickly, they will become real. And I think that's a really important thing that potentially could come out of this crisis. I just wanted to add a response to Deepak's question as uh, we're playing, uh, I think all, each of us have played uh, interviewer uh, during this Absolutely. Uh, during this conversation, I would say. So from the Bank of England's perspective, Deepak, they did a little survey of some of the directors on bank boards recently. And I literally will read kind of uh, off one of the letters they recently uh, published asking, you know, what, what are the bank's views on their prioritisation of climate risk given the pandemic? And some directors acknowledged that their firm's climate risk work had been deprioritised during the outbreak, however, recognised it's still a very key priority. And investing in green assets will be key to firm strategies, but various directors did flag that managing the effects of the transition to a low carbon environment would be extremely challenging. So, I mean, me reading between the lines, um, obviously the pandemic has a massive short-term impact on many of these bank business models. And maybe me as the optimist, I think I see this as a great opportunity to start thinking about the future and where you can kind of see, you know, um, kind of differentiate yourself as we come out of this pandemic. Um, but I can certainly understand that most banks, um, shareholders in particular, will be very keen on um, getting back on track from what um, you know from the losses that some of them are going to experience soon. So, in summary, short term potentially not so good, but maybe long term things might be moving towards that direction of actually taking a more concerted effort on uh, climate change. Thank you both for answering my questions. <laughs> um, so on that note, uh, Dr. Charnock, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you very much for coming on the, on the uh, podcast. Well, thank you both for having me. As I say, I've been looking forward to this for a long time and I only wish we had longer. All right, that was the episode with Dr. Robert Charnock on climate change from a different perspective. So we have looked at climate change previously. So we looked at it from an international perspective. Professor Glyde Hernandez. Now, in this episode, we looked at it from more of an accounting finance perspective. And for me, really refreshing. It's given me a whole different um, approach and tackled the issue um, of climate change. So I thought it was really refreshing, quite optimistic uh, conversation to have in regards to that. Yeah, what, what I really liked was his articulation of the Paris Agreement and why it's actually really good for states. And, you know, you talked previously about setting binding targets that, that didn't really work when you, no one really understood what they're trying to achieve. And so setting these looser targets and allowing people to figure out themselves what this means and taking kind of five year stocks, as he described it, was really a, a just gave me a different perspective, really, on it. Whereas before I was maybe very critical of you know why are these 190 countries doing anything faster you know why, why haven't they met this target yet mm -hmm. uh, the way you described it really changed my my perspective and actually helped reframe my perspective and, and thought of what we've achieved as in a in a much more positive light and yeah I was really, that was a really like fascinating point the way you described it actually yeah 
yeah, let's not wait around for states to do it. Let's get on. And I think that's something that we've mentioned before. I don't know if it was with climate, oh, no, not climate change, with uh, mental health. I think it's almost like we've got the we've got enough there to fuel some sort of change, and we can make it happen. So it's it's quite a, a recurring theme that's taking place or happening. So that's really good. My one worry is: is it just too late? Is it is are these things happening not quick enough, not soon enough? I know it's fantastic that the private sector, the finance sector is thinking about contingency plans, how it's going to, how climate climate crisis could affect um, the work. But is it happening quick enough? Have we left it too late? I think the way you described it actually gave me some hope because Mm -hmm. in this kind of five year, let's say set of ambitions, he did say, you know, the first five years, I want you to be ambitious. Mm -hmm. The next five years, I'm expecting you now to be even more ambitious. Yeah. And I imagine after the first five years, we'll we'll take stock of the situation and go, we're close, but if we keep doing what we're doing now, it's not going to be close enough. Mm-hmm. You guys now need to be even more ambitious over the next five years. Yeah. And that again, the way you described it filled me actually with quite a lot of hope mm-hmm. on how we could hopefully address this. Um and you know, if that doesn't work. Elon Musk apparently will be taking us to Mars, so done. We can see that there. Yeah, done. Yeah, it's 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 turned turned us two grumpy curmudgeons into maybe two people that can hope that we can actually do something. So that's always good. And like you say, we got we got a backup. Uh, Elon Musk will help us out. So that's always good. One thing I also want to discuss is when we look at how companies, think tanks, regulators are now really actually focusing and investing in a world that's not affected, potentially going to be affected by climate change or by the climate crisis, makes me think the conversations that we're having on a public level about whether climate change is happening or not are a bit redundant. These companies are investing billions upon billions of dollars in these things. Um, they are, it's a gamble, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a gamble that they're making based on the evidence in front of them. So if you look at that, that's enough for you to say we shouldn't even be talking about whether climate change is a thing or not. That's a thing of the past. We've got, you know, multi-billion dollar, billion pound corporations and companies that are acting on on this on this idea or on this um, premise that climate change is going to happen. It's going to affect um, this industry, and that should be enough for us to think. Let's move on from from the conversation of whether climate change is going to happen or not. I don't know how you feel about it whether we still need to kind of make sure that the popular the popular opinion is changing and shifting, we need to work towards that. But I don't know, I, I think of it, I look at this as a, why are we even talking about whether um, climate change is gonna happen or not? It's definitely gonna happen. This is clear proof of that. Yeah, I think that conversation is redundant. And, and even if you, I think agreeing or disagreeing with it is relevant now mm-hmm. because, I mean, we talk, we talked on the podcast a little bit about the kind of purpose of corporations and yes, in some parts of the past, it was very social and, you know, it wasn't profit oriented, but today, mostly you set up a, a corporation, the intention is to make profit and companies now realize if they're not addressing this, it will have an impact on their bottom line. Yeah. And, and as we were on the topic of finance, if I take the example of insurance companies, they don't need to accept whether climate change is real or not. All they need to look at, like you said, was the data. Mm. And the data will show there's much more extreme weather events every year than there was the previous years. And they're people who are insuring property or insuring assets against natural events. 
and they're going to be concerned because now they're ensuring things for maybe very, very long periods of time. And it's a trend of these natural events keep occurring. That's not good for them. Mm-hmm. And so I think, like you said, the conversation now, we should still have it and it's still keep informing the public about the science. And, yeah. and it is important to, to educate everyone on this topic. But I think, like you said, you know, like companies are already moving ahead and addressing this. The, yeah. the, the, the factual conversation is irrelevant now. Companies are already acting. Yeah. And I think that can only be a positive thing. Yeah. We'll uh, see what happens. Hopefully we'll see the positive shifts, the positive momentum towards um, tackling the climate crisis. And hopefully something positive definitely happens. But yeah, generally, Rob, great guy. Uh, he's, you know, he's an old friend of yours. I really enjoyed having the conversations with him. A really insightful, interesting fella. Uh, I, I just love how I love how he also almost turns it on you. Like he, he became the uh, the interviewer at times, and I, I really love that. And I've got a lot of time for him. Definitely want to have him back on because he's he's a great and interesting person to um, to interview. Yeah, it was a it was a fantastic conversation, and it was everything I expected mm-hmm. given all of our conversations in the past. And he he's he's an expert in his area. You know, he's been doing it for over ten years now. Mm-hmm. He's sought after by the top universities to talk about these topics, and um, you know he's joining a a fantastic university, um, kind of working on you know, climate change and their initiative. So he you know it's fantastic that we were able to have him on. You know, if I take away the fact he's my friend. He's a leading expert in this area, and uh, we're really, really happy and, and privileged that he was able to join us, really. And, and actually, he was in the US, wasn't he? So he was joining us uh, from the US, which was um, the furthest country that we've had a guest from. So far, yeah. Yeah, so far. Yeah. We're getting out there. Yeah. Good friends in good circles is what you've got. Good friends in good circles, that's it. Great. Keep expanding the circle of academics and... Uh, this show will take care of itself. Exactly. Brilliant. All right. So uh, let's wrap it up. So before um, closing off, a few things. Check us out on Twitter, um, House of Wisdom Podcast or How W Podcast. We're on Instagram, House of Wisdom Podcast. Just type it in. Check out the owl logo. We are, as you know, we are on Spotify, Apple. We are on Google Podcast, uh, Pocket Cast, all the Spotify, all no, not Spotify, all the podcast platforms. We're out there. So don't don't hesitate. You'll find us and tell your friends about us, tell your family members about us. Get us out there. We're, we've got big things happening in the future. We want as many people listening to us as possible. And I'll just add, if you are loving it, please leave a rating. We never asked this because we didn't really appreciate why people ask this. And I realized. To get more listeners, you need to uh, get ratings and those then ratings feed into these algorithms or whatever. And then they come up on the browse tabs of these podcasts, etc. So, yeah, if you're really enjoying it, please leave a rating. Um, the more people that can uh, listen to it um, would be awesome. And um, yeah, please do that. And I think I'll end on my, my movie quote. Yeah, it's all yours. Quote. It's, it's all yours. Quote. Go for it. Now, what do you think anyone's figured out where those quotes have come from? Um, if they if they listen this far anyway. Yeah. <laughs> we can only see a short distance ahead, but we can see plenty there that needs to be done. See ya.